Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Welcome, everyone, to the Benefits Executive Roundtable. I'm your host, Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting, and I'm really happy to have with me today as my special guest, Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office. Welcome, Marilyn, and thank you so much for being with us today once again to discuss the CAA, the transparency and coverage, machine-readable files, the CAA reporting, and so much more. Well, thank you, Dorothy. It's a pleasure being here with you today. And you know what? This is your third, this is a record, by the way. This is your third appearance on the roundtable this season. So thank you so much for that. And that just, to me, that just means that there's a lot going on related to employer benefits and health plan compliance. Yeah, they just slow down a little bit in Washington, D.C., but that would mean we'd spend less time chatting. Uh, so I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, I want to get into the details on some of this stuff because I know it's super important. And I know that you and I have talked about all of this before on many occasions. In fact, we talked briefly about this in this season's episode one and two. But now that the deadlines are here, I want to dive into it again because it's really, you know, upfront and, and one of the most important things on employers' minds right now. I also want to dig deep into the RX reporting requirements because that's what everybody seems to be freaking out about right now with the deadline looming of December 27, 2022, which is not that far away. But before we do all that, let's go back a little bit and talk quickly about something that was required as early as July 1st, 2022, which is the ACA's Transparency and Coverage Machine Readable File Disclosure Requirements, which of course began July 1st for renewal dates between January 1st and July 1st of uh, 2022. And with each renewal date thereafter on their renewal date. So let's talk about the machine readable file requirements. What files have to be disclosed and when? Can I just take a step back and say that you mentioned that people are uh, freaking out? And yes, I do see people getting, let's say, very concerned about some of these new provisions. And I want to start by saying part of the good news here is. Um, we do have more guidance available to us on both the topics we're going to talk about here today, the TIC final rule, as well as the prescription drug reporting. So I think we're going to be able to answer a lot of questions. I hope we're going to be able to answer a lot of questions that people have about details and process. And so they can take the freak out down to a more manageable <laughs> level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And everybody knows I always talk like that. But they, some of my clients have said, hey, I'm freaking out about this. So I'm actually using some of their words. But uh, yeah, I know. I know what it's I get the emails too. Yeah, <laughs> I know we both do. What is this? Why, do I really have to do this? Right, exactly. So so what files have to be disclosed and, and when? Okay, with regard to the TIC final rule and the machine readable files, um, actually the deadline for many plans has already passed for the initial disclosure. So there are two sets of machine readable files that have to be posted. One machine readable file contains all in-network provider rates for covered items and services. So if you have an item or service which is covered by your health plan, let's say it's an MRI, um, what that first file will show is what are the negotiated rates that you have negotiated with your network providers for that MRI. And the deadline to report that information 
was July 1, 2022 for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2022. So if you had a, have a calendar year plan or if you have a plan year that starts anytime from January 1, 2022 through uh, November 1, 2022, you have to report. The only people left who haven't yet reported are those with the December plan year. The second machine readable file that has to be uh, prepared and filed is um, a file of out-of-network allowed amounts for covered items and services. So with my MRI example, let's say someone goes to an out-of-network provider for an MRI. What the plan has to post is historical data indicating how much they've paid in the past when someone goes uh, and gets, for example, that MRI from an out-of-network provider. And the same deadlines apply to that machine-readable file. Well, one item has been delayed indefinitely, correct? What is that? Yes, and there was a third machine-readable file they originally intended to have everyone file having to do with prescription drug prices, and that's been delayed indefinitely in part because of the second topic we're going to cover here um, in this podcast, and that's the uh, Rx reporting requirement. So they've delayed it because of potential overlap between the two mandates. Right. <laughs> yeah, and believe me, the prescription drug one's complicated enough. We don't need to deal with two simultaneously. Uh, the machine-readable files are not really intended to be read by employees, correct? What is the intent here? Yeah, it's interesting. No, they're not intended to be read by um, employees. They're not really uh, all that user-friendly. I mean, you can open them up. You can look for certain items and data. They, they include a plain language requirement, so in theory, people can read them. But the reality is they're not layperson friendly. Instead, what they're really intended to do is to be read by machines, which is why they call them machine-readable files. Um, they intend for other computer systems to be able to hoover up the data, um, and then what they think is going to happen, what they intend to happen, is that third parties, researchers, and others out there in the industry will hoover up the data, they'll slice and dice it, they'll aggregate it and disaggregate it and come up with some information on pricing and trends and so forth based on what they find. These are public files. They are open to everyone. Um, so um, any one of us can look up and find out, for example, um, what Anthem pays for a certain product and service, what Blue Shield pays, what Kaiser pays, etc. Yeah, so what do employers have to do? You know, what types of postings do they do and so forth? What, what, is, what, are, what are the responsibilities of the employers? Responsibilities of the employer is to make certain that the uh, third parties that they're working with post these machine-readable files. So if you are fully insured, the carrier will post this data for you. So you need to work with your carrier or you need to reach out to your carrier to make certain that that happens. If you have a self-funded plan, you need to work with your third-party vendors. You need to initiate this process if they haven't already initiated with it with you. And you need to reach out to them and make certain that they are um, compiling this data on your behalf and posting it on their website. Um, employers, interestingly, do not have to post a link to this data on their websites. Um, there was some confusion about that issue early on. There was some indication that they might have to do that. So if you're an employer and you have a website that um, advertises your services, you don't have to post a link to these machine-readable files on that website. 
However, if you have, and this is very rare, if you have a website dedicated just to your group health plan you offer to your employees, you would then have to post it there. The other main requirement that employers have, whether you're fully insured or self-funded, is the written agreement requirement. Should we talk about that now? Yeah, let's just go ahead and jump into that one. It, you know, everybody has to have a written agreement. And I think this is where the fully insured plans are really kind of, you know, not really stepping up here because I don't think they're aware of it because it's not a direct, in their opinion, it's, oh, my carrier will take care of it. So even if they're fully insured, you know, let's talk about that. So what exactly do the employers need to, to do with these written agreements? What do they need to cover related to these uh, mandates? And I think you've read the situation correctly. It is a little unusual from the point of view of standard employee benefit rules that in a fully insured context, an employer would have to have a written agreement with a carrier on a provision like this. Because as I described the data, the in-network prices and the out-of-network prices, employers don't have that data if they're fully insured. They don't have access to that data. Only the insurance company has access to that data. Even if you're self-funded, the employer itself doesn't have that data. Its TPA has it, its ASO has it, um, and so forth. So you are relying on third parties. You're relying either on your insurance carrier or your TPA or your ASO to take care of this. But what the employer does have to do under the rules is have a written agreement in place with that third party through which the third party agrees to be responsible. And what's unusual is not that written that the written agreement mandate exists in the self-funded context. That's fairly standard operating procedure or fairly standard business practice. But here it's actually written into the regulations. Yeah. And it's not only written to the regulations for self-funded plans, it's written into the regulations for fully insured plans. So even if you're fully insured, small group, large group, doesn't make a difference. You have to have something in writing with your insurance carrier through which the carrier says, yes, we will be responsible for compiling and posting those machine-readable files. Right. And I know that um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I know that uh, you've already helped us with uh, our fully insured and our self-funded agreements for this and other requirements, which we'll be talking about in this podcast. But I just want to make sure that people are aware that these things do affect fully insured plans. And if you haven't started on this, you need to do it because you need, you need to talk to people like, like Marilyn or myself or whatever. You need, to get, you need to get these contracts rolling. You need to get these things out to the carriers to sign. Um, and, and let's face it, Marilyn, there are probably some carriers that aren't going to sign the agreement that they give them, correct? That's true because, you know, they are large entities and they have to, they have to uh, work with hundreds, if not thousands of employers. And so they may be a little resistant to sign um, unique written agreements with each employer um, they cover. We have seen some carriers take the initiative and reach out to employers by sending them emails. Watch for those emails or go back and look in your files if you've got one. You may not have realized what they were trying to communicate to you. And they might have said, you know, this email constitutes an amendment to your written agreement through which we agree to do the following. Or they may say, uh, please note we have updated your um, new policy uh, group contract, that, those kinds of things. So look through your records, find out if you've gotten one of those communications. If not, um, you know, reach out to your carrier, find out what, they, what their expectations are, and make certain that um, you get something in writing to confirm that um, they uh, agree to take on this responsibility. Because if you don't, if you don't have a written agreement, 
and the carrier fails to perform, in theory, the employer could be liable. Right. Right. And I know that's why we asked you to uh, draft our contracts for our fully insured groups, because we want to send them out to each of the carriers and let them respond to us. That's kind of my philosophy on this. Let them tell us, well, we don't need this because we're going to amend your policy covering this item and that we're going to take on this responsibility or whatever. But I would rather have that tracking of that correspondence between the employer or us and the uh, and the carrier saying exactly how they're handling this. So request it that our, our stance is we'll request it from the carrier, sign this contract, knowing that the majority of them may have their own agreements or may be doing something different, but at least you're addressing it and you have that documentation that you can print and keep. This is one of the things that I say, print it and keep it, put it in a file uh, so that you can see exactly you know who's doing what uh, and so forth. So I absolutely agree with that approach. I think that's that's a very prudent way to move forward. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we're doing anyway. So, And by the way, these, this requirement is not going away. So this is um, uh, these reports have to be kept up m- month by month. Um, these machine readable files have to be updated on a regular basis. And uh, if you get a new carrier in the future or you enter into a new relationship with a new TPA, this should be part of your discussion process. This should be part of the written agreements. Right, for sure. And of course, we all know that self-funded plans, of course, are going to definitely need uh, agreements with their with their vendors. So we'll talk more about that throughout the podcast. Well, let's turn to the self-service tools. The ACA, uh, Transparency and Coverage Rules, also have requirements for online self-service tools, effective January 1st, 2023. And that's just around the corner. Can you walk us through what is required and when? Yeah. So we spent that time talking about the fact that plans have to go through all this work to post these machine-readable files, and yet they're not user-friendly. They're not friendly for the average layperson to read. So what is friendly, user-friendly, and that is the online self-service tool, which is the next major uh, provision in the TIC, the Transparency and Coverage Final Rule. So the online self-service tool is not publicly posted, unlike the machine-readable files. Instead, it's a mechanism through which participants, plan participants and beneficiaries, can log on to the system and get certain cost information, or they can request certain cost information from the plan. Let's say they're planning to have an MRI or they're planning to have uh, knee replacement surgery. They can reach out to the plan and find out what it's going to cost Um, or an estimate of what it's going to cost them out of pocket if they have these services. So the online self-service tool mandate goes into effect in two stages. The first stage requires plans and insurance companies to post an initial list of 500 what they call shoppable items and services, and that must be available for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2023. So if you have a calendar year plan, this must be online and ready to go January 1, 2023. If your plan year is, say, May 1, it has to be ready to go May 1 of 2023. So that's the first 500 uh, items of shoppable services. Um, And by the way, those 500 shoppable items and services, you don't get to pick and choose. The, the powers that be have identified which 500 it is that you have to provide information on. The next level of compliance is for the next year when all other items and services beyond the 500 have to be posted. 
And that's for plan years beginning on or after January 1, 2024. Yeah, so the later in the year effective dates are actually advantageous, I think, to some. Uh, but you're right. They want it, The whole point of this is they want to have a consistent list up there so that people can see exactly what's being covered under these services. So if they were to vary those, then that wouldn't, it would, wouldn't, really wouldn't solve the problem of transparency and coverage. That's the thing. The 500 shoppable services, when you're talking about that, is a specific list because, again, they know then anybody looking at these will know exactly what's being covered and how it's being covered and so forth. So um, I just want people to understand that there is a consistent list and there's a reason for that. There's a method to that madness, so to speak. But let's talk again about the difference between fully insured and self-funded employers related to the online service tools. Can you talk about that? Well, yes, it's that written agreement requirement, really, that we talked about before with regard to the machine-readable files. That same written agreement structure and mechanism also applies to the online self-service tool. So while you're getting a rec uh, written agreement uh, with your either your insurance company or your TPA with regard to the um, uh, machine-readable files, add on to that the online self-service tool. Um, because the same rules, the same structure applies. Whether you're fully insured or self-funded, there is a mandate to have a written agreement, and you're going to have to take some steps to reach out um, to make sure it's getting done. And the reaching out and making sure it's getting done is particularly important for self-funded employers. You can't just assume your TPA is going to perform this service for you. Um, you need to get in touch with them, make certain that they're working on it, make certain that it will be in place. And find out whether or not they're going to charge you for it. That's another important point with regard to both the machine-readable files and the online self-service tool. Yes, and I know that, and again, we'll continue to talk about this throughout the podcast, but in the drafts that you provided us with and the samples that you provided with us with uh, and the contracts for both self-insured and fully insured, you actually included all of the requirements for the written agreements into one so they could just do one for everything combined and then we could just eliminate the things that don't apply in that situation, uh, which is a really smart way of doing it. I know that you and I went back and forth on this for a long time, um, probably overthinking it uh, to some to some extent because we, we both never do that. yeah we both we both tend to overthink things and and so forth. But I think the way that you ended up writing the contracts for us were were really really exceptional. So I just want to uh, say give you kudos for that because well, I think the way you. the way you approached that was fabulous. It worked out really well and, and it makes it easy for the employers. One contract, boom, done. Um, well. Let's move on to the RX reporting because that's something that's so confusing for employers. And for this CAA requirement, you know, many, many vendors are going to be involved in this, correct? Let's talk about this. What types of vendors, who's going to be involved with this process? Well, again, that's going to come down to whether you're fully insured or self-funded. But again, in either case, the employer has some work to do. Um, let's just start off right away because we just talked about it with regard to the TIC final rule. That written agreement requirement, that same structure, that same process applies to the prescription drug reporting requirement. So whether you're fully insured or self-funded, you can outsource this um, to your insurance company or to your TPA, your ASO or your PBM, but you have to have a written agreement in place. The other thing that we'll talk about um, as we get into some of the nitty-gritty of the reporting is you'll see that a lot of the data that they're asking us to report is just not in the hands of the employer. They're going to have to rely on their insurance company and their TPA to file the data. But even then, there is some data which probably the insurance company and the TPA doesn't have, and they're going to come back to the employer and they're going to say, can you please provide us with the following? 
And when they do, my guidance to employers is make sure you provide them with that data as promptly as possible so they can meet their reporting requirements on your behalf. Right. I know that our RX vendors, for example, are, first of all, the third-party administrators that we work with, um, by the way, some of which, many of which actually attended our webinars and seminars, including our September 21st Lunch and Learn, just to make sure all of their employees that were involved in this were up to speed on it. So I always take that as a compliment when our administrators and vendors attend our, our meeting. So Marilyn, that must me- mean that we're doing something right in educating people on this. So that's a good thing. But I like to think so. <laughs> yeah, I know. But, um, you know, the point I was making is that They've already been involved with this uh, because we brought it to their attention long ago. They already knew it was coming, but they went to our webinar and or seminar on this or whatever the case is. They knew it was coming. So shortly after the September 21st Lunch and Learn, I know that our uh, primary third-party administrator sent out a letter to all of our self-funded clients and kind of detailing, this is what we're going to do. These are the things that your PBM, your pharmacy benefit manager is going to do. Kind of started a dialogue with the companies, uh, with our employer clients and 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 you know, told them what to expect. And then what happened was uh, right around that same time, our, our pharmacy benefit managers reached out and sent out emails and basically asked all of our uh, self-funded clients to submit a bunch of, um, you know, demographic type information. What happened was uh, our office actually completed it all and submitted it all to them on our client's behalf so that they wouldn't have to be worried about it. So that was all done ahead of time. And they wanted this done three to four months in advance so that they'd have this information so that they could get to work on their part. Um, I don't know if all PBMs are doing that, but it's, it's a complicated process and it's not something, as you mentioned, that's going to happen overnight. So, you know, it, a lot of vendors involved, a lot of, a lot of things are going to have to happen and, uh, not a whole lot of time to do it in. So let me just emphasize, if you are fully insured, the insurance company will take care of the reporting for all intents and purposes. What your responsibility is as an employer is to get back to them with any questions that they have and provide any data that they don't have in their possession and may be missing so they can complete the reporting process and you need that written agreement. If you're self-funded, again, the employer probably doesn't have any of this data in its files, so it's going to have to outsource it. And it's possible that the information will be held by multiple parties and the regulators are aware of that. So, for example, your TPA might have some of the data and your PBM might have some other parts of the data. So you're going to want to work with all of the relevant parties, as Dorothy was indicating, and make certain that everyone is is doing their jobs and performing everything on time, and that the data is getting uh, transmitted and filed, and that you as the employer are getting whatever data they ask you for to them so that they can meet their obligations. So having said all these things, um, it is very confusing as we talked about. There's a lot of vendors involved. What is the goal of the prescription reporting requirements? Basically what they're looking for is information on um, trends in the pharmaceutical industry and uh, the healthcare industry. There's been a lot of talk for many years about how expensive prescription drug prices um, can be for many consumers and what drives those cost factors and what we can do to address it. So this information will give the regulators an idea of what drugs are the most popular, what have the highest utilization, what drives the cost for both the prescription drugs as well as what impact that has on premiums. They're looking for trends, they're looking for information on potential monopolies and um, Uh, presumably they're then going to use this data to make some legislative or regulatory changes uh, or uh, um, proposals down the line. Okay. So what specifically needs to be reported? I know that there are three specific sets of prescription data that has to be reported. What are those and when are they due? 
So some of the most essential data that they're looking for um, are first the 50 brand prescription drugs most frequently dispensed by pharmacies, the 50 most costly prescription drugs, and the 50 prescription drugs with the greatest increase in plan expenditures. So those are the three main categories. There, there's additional information they want as well. Um, they want to know uh, information on total plan spending on prescription drugs, total plan spending on health care. They want to know about premium amounts paid by employers and employees toward the cost of plans. And they want to know about rebates and fees paid by drug manufacturers and how those fit into the puzzle. Yeah, and you mentioned that some of the data, the for example, the pharmacy benefit manager may not have total health plan data, total health plan expenses, and so forth, right? So again, another reason to make sure you start this early and coordinate all these things, because some of this information is going to come from the PBM, the pharmacy benefit manager. Some of it may come from the third-party administrator. Some of it may come from the employer. Exactly. And you've identified the right categories that provide us with examples of these situations of how the various parties have to work together. Much of this data about prescription drugs will, of course, be in the hands of the PBM. For example, they will know the 50 brand prescription drugs most frequently dispensed. But there are other, there's other data, as you mentioned, um, the total spending on health care. Um, that is probably not going to be known by the PBM. It's going to be known by your TPA. But then we also mentioned premium expenses. Um, and how much is the total premium cost um, for the plan? And how is that premium broken down between employer and employee? Um, the TPA may have that data. The PBM will not, but the employer surely will. So this is, that's, these are perfect examples of how all three parties are going to have to work together in order to share this data to make certain it gets reported uh, to the powers that be in a timely manner. Yes, and actually there's probably four parties in a lot of cases as well. So there may be three parties. There might be four parties. It's going to be different in each situation. For example... In our company, uh, as the agents, we're actually consolidating a lot of this information for our clients and so forth and working with the TPAs. And we'll talk more about that. But it may just be, you know, you might have one, two, three, four. There might be, you know, a lot of different vendors depending on every specific situation. So I think that's, again, another reason to get started on this right away. And, for example, some plan, uh, some employer plans might have more than one PBM, depend, right. especially if they're located in different states, for example. Um, or there might be some drugs that are not processed by the PBM, but that are processed by the TPA. So, all, you know, the, all of that data is eventually going to have to get reported, but it's important to identify who has what and who's going to take responsibility. Right, right. So, Marilyn, one very, very important question. What are the deadlines of the prescription drug reporting requirements? This is critical because the deadline to report is just right around the corner. The Prescription drug reporting is done on a calendar year basis. It doesn't matter if your plan is not on a calendar year basis. You have to report the prescription drug information on a calendar year basis. And the first deadline is, as I said, right around the corner, December 27, 2022. And by December 27, 2022, you have to make these, these reports on prescription drug usage for the 2020 and the 2021 calendar years. And the reason it happened this way is originally the reporting was supposed to be done on an annual basis every June 1, but they gave us a little extra time for 2020 and 2021 and made the deadline for those two calendar years, December 27th of 2022. 
with regard to the 2022 calendar year and all subsequent calendar years, you will report on the following June 1. So for the 2022 calendar year, you report on June 1, 2023. For the 2023 calendar year, you report on June 1, 2024, and so forth. So let's talk about the applicability of the prescription reporting rule. What are the employers required to submit and not required to submit? This mandate falls on group health plans, and it falls on group health plans whether they're fully insured or self-funded. If you're fully insured, the carrier individually has a mandate um, to report. Um, but as I said at the beginning, there's still that written agreement requirement, and they still may ask you to assist them in the process, which you are obligated to do. If you're self-funded, you, um, as the employer, are obligated to report, um, but you can outsource it to your TPA, your PBM, etc. But this is only, uh, the reporting is only required for group health plans. What, it's, what you don't have to report on are claims paid through account-based plans, such as health reimbursement arrangements, accepted benefits, such as standalone uh, dental and vision plans, short-term limited duration plans, which don't exist in California, but they might exist in your state, um, hospital or other fixed indemnity plans, uh, disease-specific plans. Also, and these are uh, government-type programs, but Medicare Advantage and Part D plans and Medicaid plans do not have to report. Well, thank you. Well, now comes the tough part. How do you submit? And this is complicated. I think the most complicated portion of this. Uh, let's walk everyone through the CMS Enterprise Portal and the prescription data collection using what they call the Health Insurance Oversight System, or HIOS. You'll probably hear that acronym quite a bit now. Is it all on the shoulders of the employers? And if not, who else? I know we've already been talking about this, but maybe you can kind of summarize this. In order to submit the data to the government, they have set up um, an what they call the CMS Enterprise Portal. Um, actually, the CMS Enterprise Portal has it has been in existence for some time for other types of reporting in connection with your group health plan, but they're also using it specifically for the prescription data uh, collection process. Um, and they call it the Health Insurance Oversight System, or HIOS. In order to submit data, you have to register. There is a registration process. It's not instantaneous. It takes a little bit of time unless you're accustomed to doing it, like Advanced Benefit Consulting is accustomed to doing it. Um, but there is a process through which you sign up and then submit the data. They have provided us with various sets of instructions. If you do have to take on this responsibility on your own, they have provided us with resources. There is a quick reference guide to um, set up the system, to get registered and set up so that you're ready to start filing the data. Um, in addition to the quick reference guide, there is a um, HIOS prescription drug data collection user manual. They had originally promised us some um, webinars. Those have not <laughs> um, been produced yet, so those may come, uh, they may not. Um, but in the meantime, as I said, we do have some of these uh, manuals and materials uh, to help facilitate the process. I will say, however, I think in most cases, the filing is going to end up being done by third parties. If you're fully insured, your carrier is going to do all the filings for you. You just have to make certain through the written agreement process that they agree to do so. If you're self-funded, this will probably be facilitated by the most part for with your third-party vendors, that your TPA will file directly with the HIOS system, your PBM will file directly with the HIOS system. If there's anything 
that they aren't taking care of and that falls on the employer, then you can register or um, you can utilize the system that Dorothy's using for her clients where Advanced Benefit Consulting has um, registered on the employer's behalf and they will help you facilitate that filing process. Yeah, so as, as you said, the whole thing is all about coordinating the efforts and making sure that everybody's getting the job done. Uh, so yes, as you mentioned our, in our office, we actually have set up uh, our own account. Uh, my business partner actually, because he's the one that's used to dealing with this, uh, he actually has gone in and set up uh, an account as a user. And basically, he's going to be the one facilitating the reporting on behalf of our employer clients. Um, and we'll continue to do that as long as we need to. Uh, eventually, I hope this will become very routine for the third-party administrators and the pharmacy benefit managers, so we'll be able to step back a little bit and just oversee. But it's a very complicated process. Do you agree? Um, I do agree that um, they're trying to make it as easy as possible, but a couple of pointers that I'll give you, and that is if you decide to register on your own and not utilize a third party for a certain, at least part of the process, I, I like to remind people this is not like filing your, your taxes through tax cut. Um, it is going to take a little bit of time yep. to register. If you've done it before, um, like Advanced Benefit Consulting has, then it's going to be easier than it, it, if you've never done it before. But it is going to take a little bit of time. Like it takes a little bit of time to register for the with the IRS to file your 1094 and 1095 forms. So all I mean by that is don't wait till noon on December 27th, the filing deadline. You can register early, even if the forms aren't ready to file, um, you can register early so you'll have that part of the process out of the way. Yeah, and you're right. It is not easy because, for example, when my business partner, Anthony, went into the portal to get this uh, set up, uh, I know he had to submit a lot of data, very personal data and so forth. Uh, and, of course, multi-factor multi authentication was used and so on and so forth. Uh, and it was very long and tedious process for him, even having worked with this before. And then he has to wait for an approval process, you know, after that. So it, it's not something you can do right away because you have to wait for them to say, okay, you're actually qualified to be able to transmit this information on behalf of this other party. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a de detailed process and it's not something you can do, you know, in a day, uh, you have to plan way ahead and, uh, especially if you're going to get involved with this kind of thing. So let's break down what type of data needs to be reported. So for fully insured employers, what needs to be reported and by whom? The employer needs to file some basic information as we talked about or supply it to the carrier or issuer to report it, correct? And, you know, so even the fully insured employer, I guess that's the point I'm trying to make, has work to do on this, correct? Probably, yes, that is correct. Well, absolutely, yes, that is correct because they have that written agreement mandate. So if you are fully insured, the carrier has most of this prescription drug information and the health claims cost information. So the carrier is going to report all of that on your behalf. But in addition to filing all of that data, they also need some specific information from the employer. They need the employer's name. They need the name of the employer's plan. And by that, I mean, if you are large enough to file a Form 5500, it's the name in your Form 5500. They need your EIN number. They need um, your plan year, et cetera. So some specific demographic data the carrier will probably reach out to the employer and ask for that data and then file that data on the employer's behalf. So the two things that the employer probably needs to follow up on are have that written agreement in place with the carrier um, and um, make sure that you provide any data required uh, by the carrier um, in a timely manner. 
I should mention, in addition to the demographic data, again, they'll probably ask for the premium data from the employer because the carrier, well, they'll know what the total premium cost is. They won't know the breakdown between employer versus employee, and they'll probably need to reach out and ask the employer to supply that detail. Right, right. So you talked about fully insured. Let's talk about self-funded employers. They will have multiple what they call reporting entities. Can you break this down? Uh they have plan level data and aggregated data that needs to be filed. Can you break this down for us? Well, in many respects, it's going to be the same for self-funded employers because, again, they're not going to have in their files the 50 most uh, prescribed prescription drugs. So they're going to have to reach out to the third party. There is no insurance company, but there's a TPA and a PBM that probably have this data. And in this case, the additional work that falls on the self-funded funded employer is initiating the process and following up and making sure it all gets done. Um, and in that case, it probably requires coordination with multiple entities, as we've said a couple of times now, because it is important. Coordinate with each of the parties, the TPA, the PBM, anyone else who might have some of the data. Make certain you know um, when we break down the different categories of data, who's going to be responsible for reporting under which category and then that they all follow through on that. Yeah, so let's talk about plan level data. The P2 data file, which employers may be asked to provide, what does this include? And do you think that any carriers are going to ask employers to submit this themselves? Or do you think they'll ask the employers for the information and then the carriers will submit it? What, what do you think your thoughts are on this initially? I think many carriers, I've already seen some carriers, in fact, reach out and ask for this information. So that the, the files that the... Uh, government, CMS, wants you to report is uh, identified by um, a letter and a number. So there's the plan level files, P1, P2, and P3, and then there are the data files, D1 through D8. And I use that those specific references because I have seen some of the carriers reach out to employers and use those specific file identifiers in their communications. So the plan level data that is relevant to employers with a group health plan is the P2 file. Um, the P2 file is identifiable or demographic data about the employer itself. Plan level data is what it stands for. And I referenced this a moment ago. This is where they want the name of the employer. They want the employer's EIN. They want the employer's plan name, plan number, like plan 501, um, the plan year, etc. Um, and that is what they will reach out to employers and ask for. In the case of a self-funded employer, your TPA may already have a lot of this data, but there's some little pieces of the puzzle they may not have and they may ask you to supply. Right. So what about the D1 data file? What is it that employers may need to provide for the D1 file? The D1 file is a data file. That's what the D stands for. And specifically in the D1 file, that is where you're reporting premium data. So if you've got a fully insured plan, the carrier probably knows what premium they charged you back in 2020 and 2021. So they may not need to ask you for that information, although they may. Um, but what they won't know is how that um, premium was broken down between employer contributions versus employee contributions. So they may ask you for that data. Similarly, in the self-funded arena, um, your TPA may have some of that information, um, but they may not. So in case they don't, again, they will probably reach out to you to help facilitate that. Interestingly, when 
the third parties report this data, whether it's an insurance uh, company or for the fully insured uh, business or whether it's a TPA for self-funded clients. They actually aggregate all the data reported in the D files. The D1 through the D8 files is aggregated. So let's talk about Alpha Corporation. They're not going to say Alpha Corporation paid this much in premium or Alpha Corporation's 50 brand prescription drugs most frequently dispensed were the following. Instead, they aggregate it across their book of business. So whether it's a fully insured situation where you've got Aetna reporting or Cigna reporting or Anthem reporting, or whether it's a self-funded situation where you've got a TPA who represents multiple employer self-funded plans, they're going to aggregate the data across all of their plans and report the totals to the government with regard to the D files. Um, the only way they're going to break down the data is by market segment, which we'll talk about in a minute, as well as by the states um, in which the plans are offered. So they'll aggregate all the substantive data, all the data about prescription drug usage, premium data, total spending, etc. The one thing that won't be aggregated is at the same time as they provide the D-level files, they also have to file the P2 file, which is where they identify all of their specific clients. So insurance carrier A will aggregate all the information on the 50 most prescribed drugs for all of their employer clients, and then they will specifically identify separately in a separate file all the names of the 50 employer clients with the P2 data you've provided to them. Um, so they uh, so the government knows who has been reported on and who hasn't. They right. just want to tie the data together. Right. I'm glad you talked about that because that was going to be my next question, uh, was to talk about the files under the aggregated data. So let's take a look at the process next. For aggregation, entities will be reporting on behalf of the multiple plans, as you talked about. So can you walk us through this process? Yeah. So as I said, what the carrier will do is it or the carrier or the TPA will gather all the data from all of their clients, all of their employer clients um, and uh, add it up all together and report it. So a D1 file will contain the premium information um, for all of the TPA's clients. The D1 file will contain the premium information for all of the carrier's clients or customers. Um, the uh, same with D2, D3, D4, etc. But the only, but they will break it down to some extent. They have to break it down by market segment, and they have to break it down by the place where the policy was issued. So um, market segment is um, there's seven categories. All of this, by the way, will be handled in the background. Um, the TPA will have to worry about it. The insurance company will have to worry about it. How they break this part of the data out. But just so that you know how it gets reported, it's going to be broken down into seven market segments, individual, student, fully insured small group, fully insured large group, self-funded small group, self-funded large group, and federal employees health benefits. And those are health plans offered to federal employees. Okay, Marilyn, thank you. Uh, now the plan lists and files. Can you tell us simply what the P&D stands for? Yeah, so to reiterate, the plan lists identify um, uh, three different types of plans. So P1 stands for individual and student market plans. P2 
P2 stands for group health plans, and P3 stands for federal employees health benefit plans. So there are three different P-level files um, for our purposes, for probably just about everyone listening in here today. The one thing that we're concerned about are the P2 files, and that's the group health plans. And in the P2 file, an insurance company and TPA will list all of their employer clients by that under that market segment. So if um, you know insurance company A has a thousand employers to whom they sold um, small group fully insured coverage, they will ident- provide all the identifying data for all those thousand employers in that P2 file. And then they'll turn around and take all the aggregated data from the 1,000 employers, wrap it all together, add it all up, and then file that separately in the D1 files. And the D1 files are broken down. D1, for example, is where you report premium. D2 is where you report um, total healthcare spending. D3 is where you report the top 50 most frequent brand drugs. D4, top 50 most costly drugs. D5, top 50 drugs by spending increase. D6, prescription drug spending in total. D7, uh, prescription rebates by therapeutic class. And D8, prescription rebates for the top 25 drugs. So let's say you're a fully insured employer. On your behalf, what needs to get filed is a P2, a plan list file, as well as the eight data files, D1 through D8. Similarly, if you're self-funded, the exact same files have to get reported, P2 and D1 through D8. And in addition to the P files and the D data files, there's also a narrative. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask you next about the narrative, because I know that's one thing that I'm going to be involved in is writing the narrative for all of our, particularly for our self-funded clients. So let's talk about that. What is that and what needs to be in it? So in addition to the P2 file and the D1 through D8 files, whether you're fully insured or self-funded, the last thing that has to get filed is a narrative response. If you're fully insured, the carrier will probably take care of this for you. If you are self-funded, you need to make sure it gets taken care of either by your third-party vendors um, or work with uh, your broker or your vendors to, to file it on your own. The narrative response is going to be a Word or a PDF document that you will file along with the P and D files that provide some uh, clarifying or explanatory information. And they have identified specifically about, I think it's about seven or eight categories of data you have to specifically include in the narrative. Um, They want your employer size. They want net payments um, for federal and state reinsurance or cost-sharing reduction programs. They want to know the allocation methods for prescription drug rebates as well as the impact of prescription drug rebates. They define all this in their instructions in a little bit more detail. It's also uh, used um, as kind of a catch-all. So if there's some uh, area in your reporting where you have to explain a methodology, um, then where you do that is you add in the explanation for the methodology into the narrative response. So you have to, in the narrative, you have to hit all the categories they specifically identify, and then you can also use it as a catch-all to provide some additional disclosures if it's mandated um, 
by the manner in which you uh, reported the information. Yes, very good job with that. <laughs> That's it's, it's a lot of information that needs to be in that narrative. And as you said, they do have a minimum of information that needs to be included in that narrative report. So again, like I said, I'm going to be the one doing that. So I've become pretty familiar with that. You know, we haven't talked about resources. and Well, we did talk about resources with regard to the HIOS system, but they've also issued some resources with regard to the uh, prescription drug reporting. Um, including a, a manual, an instruction manual. And in that instruction manual, one of the things they break down is what exactly has to be included in the narrative response. Right. And just so that everyone knows, what we're going to do is include some show notes with this podcast. We will include uh, some of those instructions and, and some of the other things, including the quick guide and so forth. Uh, so if you want to take a look at that, we will include those in the show notes when we post this podcast. So thanks, Marilyn, for all that information. Lastly, I want to come back to what we've talked about several times in this podcast, the action items, those written agreements with vendors. Um, and we talked about this already. You've already prepared four company samples for us, two for self-funded plans that we can use, one for the third-party administrator and one for other vendors, With, the, for example, like the pharmacy benefit manager. And we have the ability to you know, delete uh, the items that don't apply in that particular situation. Then we have two for fully insured plans as well. Uh, let's come back to this because I want to end on this because it's so important. Why are these agreements, once again, so important and can they be combined for all of the above uses? Well, they are very important because, again, whether you're fully insured or self-funded, you must have these written agreements in place. And I, I think this is a somewhat unique requirement um, that apart from the HIPAA business associate agreements, we haven't seen too many mandatory contracts with vendors and in, in the various regulations that have been exist that have been issued over the years. But um, they have issued this mandate to have a written agreement with regard to the TIC final rule, both the machine readable files and the online self-service tool, an air ambulance reporting mandate for which they have not yet final finalized the regulations, and this prescription drug reporting. And what they have said here is with regard to first fully insured plans, um, much of this reporting is probably, if not all of it, is going to effectively be done by your insurance company, but you still have to have a written agreement with the insurance company. And if you have that written agreement and if the insurance company fails to perform, it will be the insurance company and not the employer who will be deemed to be out of compliance with the regulations. If you are self-funded, Again, you are free to outsource this uh, mandate, um, and in fact, compliance with the mandate will almost necessarily have to be outsourced because self-funded employers have a lot of data, but they just don't have all of this data. So they can outsource it to one or more responding entities, but again, they must enter into a written agreement with those um, outside vendors to make certain that they agree to be in compliance. But here's the little twist with regard to self-funded entities, and that is that although you're required to enter into a written agreement, if you do so and they, the third parties fail to perform, unlike in the fully insured context, the employer still remains responsible to ensure compliance and could still be found liable if the third parties fail to perform. And the written reason for that really is, is that the, uh, the powers that be, the Departments of Health and Human Services, Labor, and uh, Treasury, don't have any jurisdictional authority over those third parties. So the only way they can enforce this rules is to make certain that the self-funded employer makes certain that it gets done. So you need that written agreement. 
You can combine and have one written agreement to address all of these mandates, TIC, prescription drug, air ambulance reporting. You can break them up. Um, they haven't specified what form the written agreement must take. We have seen rewritten contracts. We have seen amendments to contracts. We have seen email confirmations of amendments to contracts. So they take different forms. Um, you're going to have a little bit more work to do on the self-funded uh, uh, arena because you're going to have to break down who's responsible for what. You may need one contract with the TPA and a separate one with your PBM and say, you know, the PBM will be responsible for the following specific data files and the TPA will be responsible for the remaining data files, that kind of thing. Um, but it is something that you need to take some time and pay some attention to. Um, in both scenarios. And um, I think Dorothy earlier when we were talking about the TIC final rule explained it very well. Even if you're fully insured, I think it's very prudent to reach out to your carrier. Don't assume they're going to reach out to you. Take the affirmative step, reach out to them, offer them up a contract amendment or see where they stand on this and then move forward and keep that paper trail so that if, every, and it, if any questions ever arise, um, uh, you can prove that you met your fiduciary obligations um, in the administration of your group health plan and you dotted your I's and crossed your T's and did the best that you could to make sure that you were in full compliance with the rules. Yeah, and I, and as you said, some carriers have already started just sending out emails. I, for one, don't really like that way they do that uh, because there's no signature or anything. They're, they're just saying, we're sending an email to tell you that we're doing this, but it's an amendment. Um I, I don't like that approach. I know some carriers are doing that because it's easy. But um, again, being an employer, paying for a health plan and being liable for some of this stuff, you want to make sure that the other uh, people involved, the other parties involved, like the carriers, there's, there's actually a written – because again, because it, the, the law requires a written agreement, I'm not sure in my mind that email that they sent really um, – really complies with that law. So that's, again, why we're sending them out to them and then letting them respond to that. So, I mean, everybody's going to do a little bit differently, but um, I just don't like the way that some of the carriers are starting to do that, which is sending out an email saying we're amending this policy uh, because it does. The law does require a specific written agreement. So I don't know. It, it's not ideal, but, you know, definitely if that's all they will provide to you, um, definitely keep that in your file right. because that is what you you will hold them to it. They right. promise um, that this this constitutes um, a written agreement to perform, and you're going to want to hold them to that. So keep a copy of that in your files to make certain um, that you can hold them to it. And I think it, to some degree, I think um, uh, economic reality <laughs> or yeah, the reality of the, of the um, uh, business world are going to sink in because, you know, some of these carriers have thousands and thousands of employers. I oh, don't right. know what the numbers yeah. are, but they have thousands of employers and they may not um, have the staff to look over each agreement. So while that may be ideal, it may not happen. Um, so um, whatever it, you are provided, keep it in your files and um, as yeah. keep that keep that paper trail. Yeah, as you said, keep that paper trail. So if you're ever audited, an employee ever questions it, you can establish the steps that you took to comply. Right, right, and that's what I, I talked about that right at the beginning and continued all the way through. Thank you very much. Well, Marilyn, thank you so much for all this important information, and thank you so much for all the work you've done for us and for all of our clients over the past 15 to 18 months or so. But 
you know, we know we've done a number of webinars, seminars, lunch and learns and so forth on this. But now that the deadlines are here, as you as you stated and I've stated, it's even more important to go back and review everything because now it's not just something that's in the, you know, back in the in the in the far, you know, future somewhere. It's now. It's here. It's the reality. So we just did our final for now. Anyways, I always say for now because never think I guess nothing's ever final when they keep changing the rules <laughs> uh, webinar on this on November 9th and it will be available on demand on our Empowered Education Center platform in just a couple of weeks so you can go back and review that if you'd like to thank you Marilyn so much for everything related to all of this thank you so much thank you Dorothy it's always a pleasure working with you on these projects and I enjoy these podcasts and having the opportunity to talk through these issues um, and educate employers on what they have to do and what we can do to help them uh, move forward with these very important processes. If anyone would like to reach out to you, as I'm sure many will now, particularly for guidance for written contracts and so forth, now that we've been talking about this, and I'm sure they've been hearing about it elsewhere, how can they reach you? Either by phone or email. My phone is 310-989-0993, and my email is marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Great. Thank you so much. And for everyone, this is our last podcast for 2022. Of course, season four will continue about midway through January. Until then, to all of you out there, please stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned for future episodes of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays, everyone. And happy reporting. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3 toll-free at 866-658-3835, or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.